In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us kneel. My most sweet Jesus, who was born in a cave and was afterwards laid in a manger upon straw, have mercy upon us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We praise Thee, O Mother of God. We confess Thee, Mary, ever-Virgin. Deign, O sweet Mary, now and forever, to keep us without sin. Have mercy on us, O loving one. Have mercy on us. Let Thy good mercy be upon us, because we trust in Thee, O Virgin Mary. In Thee, O sweet Mary, we do hope. Do Thou defend us forever. Amen. And let us pray in preparation for Christmas. Blessed be the hour and the moment in which the Son of God was born of the most pure Virgin Mary at midnight in Bethlehem in piercing cold. In that hour vouchsafe, O oh my God, to hear my prayer and grant my desires through the merits of our Savior Jesus Christ and of His Blessed Mother. Amen. Today is the vigil of the nativity of our Savior Jesus Christ. The following took place on this very day, 2023 years ago. The Blessed Virgin and St. Joseph arrived at Bethlehem about four in the afternoon and made their way through the crowds to a large building where public officials were taking the census and levying taxes. Mary rested in the court, and several women generously gave her something to eat. St. Joseph went to a big room where he was asked his name and occupation. He replied that he owned no property, but lived from his manual labor. Later, as the sun was sinking, they began to look for a lodging. While Mary waited at the end of a street, Joseph went down it from house to house, knocking at the doors of his relatives and acquaintances. But he was admitted nowhere, and in many places he met with harsh refusals and insults. Each time he came back to Mary, he was more and more upset. She knew that the hearts and houses of men were to be closed to them. At the end of the village they found a big tree, and under the shelter of its spreading branches, Mary waited and rested for a long time, first standing and then sitting with her legs crossed under her. Many people passed by and stared at her as she sat there so patiently and humbly in her long white dress and veil, with her hands folded on her breast and her head lowered. Finally, about nine o'clock, St. Joseph came back utterly overcome, crying and trembling, with heartbreaking sorrow. Mary consoled him tenderly. Then he told her of a shepherd's shelter outside the town, and she said, That will be perfectly satisfactory to me. Let us lovingly embrace poverty, dear Joseph, and go gladly wherever the Lord guides us. Upon entering the bare grotto, which the shepherds used as a stable, they both knelt and thanked God. And Mary was filled with joy 
at being at last in this holy place. She immediately set about cleaning the cave with her own hands out of humility and reverence. St. Joseph hastened to do likewise and the angels helped them. Next he started a fire as it was very cold and they ate a frugal supper, their souls overflowing with happiness at the thought of the impending incarnation. Three weeks ago, at the beginning of the new church year, at the beginning of Advent, I explained to you that we began the church year with Advent and four great truths about Jesus Christ. Especially today and in the days to come, we focus on that fourth truth. Jesus came in the flesh to save us. He is your Savior. He is my Savior. He loves you. He loves me. This is a great truth of our Savior Jesus Christ. We can say the great mystery of the Incarnation. The Word was made flesh and came to dwell among us. But throughout the year, don't forget to continue to think about, to reflect on, to consider the other three great truths about our Savior Jesus Christ. Because it is significant that we begin the year focused on these four truths, not so that we'll forget them a week later or a month later or two months later, but so that they really will mark, so to speak, our entire year. Holy Mother Church sets us on the right foot, well, sets us on the right path. We're to keep walking along that path. Those other three truths, the one, two, and three, are Jesus will come with great power and majesty to judge the living and the dead. An absolutely certain truth about our Savior, Jesus Christ, that should affect the way we live our lives every single day. The second one, Jesus will come to judge me at the moment of my death. And the third one, Jesus comes to me with His grace today, especially in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, in the Holy Eucharist. Many of you are aware that a, a scandalous document came out of the Vatican exactly a week from tomorrow on December the 18th. I don't have time to go into detail in that document but I do just want to make you aware of it in case you're not aware of it. I hope to have just at least a few minutes because after I quote to you three different responses, all of them among the better responses to this document, what I'd like to just point out to you is how in many ways, I won't be able to list all the ways, but in many ways, this document that has come out of the Vatican is a direct contradiction to these four great truths of our Savior Jesus Christ, fundamental to our faith, emphasized at the very beginning of, of the year, and truths that we are to reflect on throughout the year. Onto that document, it's, it's called a declaration. The name of it in Latin is Fiducia Supplicans. And it's a declaration on the pastoral meaning of blessings. 
It was issued on December the 18th by the prefect for the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, Cardinal Victor Manuel Fernandez, and it was approved by Pope Francis. Already here, we have to be aware of how there is, there truly is diabolical deception in this document because it purports, I mean on the surface, what it's doing is it's saying, look, there's a different kind of blessing, kind of inventing out of thin air a different kind of blessing and saying it's no longer a liturgical blessing, let's say an official blessing of the church, but there's such a thing now as a pastoral blessing. And so it takes this route to try and tolerate and even in in many ways to acknowledge and to promote grave, grave sin, even unnatural vices. What I'd like to do is just again read to you the response from two prelates, one priest. I'm not going to read to you the entire response. I mean, each one gave a longer response to this document. I'm just taking a, a short little excerpt from what they said. If you're interested, and I encourage you to read the longer version or the full response, but I will be quoting to you from Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, also from the Superior General of the SSPX, that's the Society of St. Pius X. Some of you know that that's a priestly fraternity that is dedicated to promoting the traditional Latin Mass, promoting the traditional Catholic faith. And then a excerpt from an interview that was given by Bishop Athanasius Schneider. So here's the first one. This is Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. Quote, If this document really had as its purpose the good of adulterers, concubinaries, and sodomites, it should have pointed out to them the heroism of Christian witness, reminded them of the self-sacrifice that our Lord asks of each of us, and taught them to put their trust in God's grace in order to overcome trials and live in conformity with His will. Bergoglio does not ask them to change their lives. This is a key point that Archbishop Bigano makes. Bergoglio does not ask them to change their lives, but authorizes a grotesque farce in which two men or two women will be able to appear before a minister of God to be blessed together with their relatives and friends and then celebrate the sinful union with a banquet. So that's quoting Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano. I just point out to you just very quickly right now, note that he makes a very important point where he's saying, look, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, saying, look, nowhere in the document are these souls encouraged and challenged to be heroes in their faith to really give a witness to Christ, to put their trust in God's grace, and God's grace is all-powerful, to put their trust in God's grace in order to overcome their difficulties, their temptations, the whatever crosses it, it might be that they have to carry. And he says, nowhere does the document remind them of the self-sacrifice that our Lord asks each of us. 
As Catholics, we have to also sacrifice. We're not on this world to live our own, to do our own will, to think the way we want to think or to think the way the world thinks. And this is already extremely relevant to Christmas and to one of those great truths of our Savior Jesus Christ. And that is, again, Jesus came in the flesh and He was born 2,000 years ago to save us from sin and to give us the grace and strength. This is what it means to believe truly in baby Jesus, to give us the grace and strength to overcome sin, to really be able to make heroic sacrifices, even when it's not easy. He was born so that we may become divine, so that we may become like Him. And especially in His birth, we see how much He suffered and how much He sacrificed for us. So that we will try and suffer and sacrifice at least a little bit for Him and for His love in return. On to the next statement. And this one is by the Superior General of the SSPX. His name is Don Davide Pagliarani. He's an Italian. The day following the publication of the document, he gave this response. So he gave this response on December the 19th. The document came out on December the 18th. Listen carefully to what Don Pagliarani says, because I'm going to read to you and I'm going to say he's using quotations because he's directly quoting the document. Pay close attention because what this document does, again, it's very cunning and deceiving. I mean, it's truly the work of modernism because it's not explicitly contradicting Catholic Church teaching because if it were to do that, then it would be very easy for all the rest of the, let's say, somewhat sane Catholics to be able to clearly say, okay, this is clearly heretical. And so it's disguised as best as it can be disguised, which is not much of a disguise. But the whole point of the document is it's basically saying, look, just because we give a blessing, don't think it's really a blessing. It's not a liturgical blessing. It's a quote-unquote pastoral blessing. And this pastoral blessing isn't in any way, let's say, affirming a sinful lifestyle, but rather it's meant to help a person, whatever good there may be in that person, whatever positive there may be in that person, well, it's to help that along and so that God can bring kind of like healing, strength and change to that person. And so what Don Pagliarani is doing is he's directly quoting one of those very important phrases and then pointing out to you why it's completely contrary to our faith. So, this is what he writes. Quote, The call for such a blessing, he puts it in quotations, would consist only of asking for these people in a non-liturgical framework that, again in quotations, quoting the document, that all that is true, good, and humanly valuable in their lives and in their relationships be invested, healed, and elevated by the presence of the Holy Ghost. Close quote. But to make those who live in a fundamentally flawed union believe that the same could have any positive value is the worst kind of deception and the most serious lack of charity 
towards these lost souls. It is wrong to imagine that there is anything good in a situation of public sin. And it is wrong to claim that God can bless couples living in such a situation. I want to point out to you how this way of approaching, again, this so-called pastoral blessing, how crazy it is and how it reveals so clearly for anyone who truly loves Christ and who truly believes in Christ, how it shows so clearly a complete lack of faith in Christ. And again, I'll just give you here a couple of quick examples. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Think about a person who, let's say, was walking along and fell in a well. Or fell in a big hole. You could even say fell in an abyss. And they're drowning. Now, please think very seriously about this comparison because this is what mortal sin is. This is what the Catholic Church has always taught about mortal sin. And this is why the Catholic Church always exhorts us to convert and to turn away from sin and to place ourselves in a state of grace. Because it's something truly serious. Now, if you don't believe it's really that serious, well, then it's a lot easier to start talking about, oh yes, well, let's look and see it. what's positive in this and positive in this relationship, what's valuable here, what's valuable there. But I can promise you that people that talk and write like that, they don't really believe that Jesus is going to come and judge the living and the dead. They don't really believe that Jesus is going to truly judge that person and it's going to be a strict judgment at the moment of one's death. So, think about it this way. You have a person that falls in the well, the person's drowning. If you love the person, certainly if you love the person, but even if you're just a decent human being, you're going to try to help them. And all of your focus is going to be obviously on getting them out of the well you're certainly not going to be talking about how, well, look at the positive things about that person that's in the well. Yesterday, you know, they gave a donation to the poor. You know, two weeks ago, they said a kind word to their neighbor. You'd say, all of that is irrelevant. It wouldn't make any sense even to be focusing on all those things because what is truly pressing what is most true and most urgent is to help that person out of the well. This really, I would say, is the biggest problem with the document. Obviously, there are many problems with what is said and how it's said and how this deception is being carried out, but you have no call to conversion. There's no clear teaching, no clear Catholic teaching of the gravity of sin that's involved of the fact that, again, you have souls that are in grave, grave danger of eternal damnation. And where is the help? Where is the love of Holy Mother Church? You know, another example of this, again, just so you see, that those who are speaking this way and writing this way, they don't believe. Because, say your house was on fire. If your house was on fire, it's obvious that what you would do is you would put out the fire. 
you wouldn't be writing about how there are a lot of positive aspects about my house. I have a nice door. I have a nice window. I like the artwork that I have in my house. Because what is critical is to save your house. What's critical here is saving souls. Complete silence. And what's even worse is the whole thrust of this is allowing those souls, lost souls, to think that they're okay. And to think that things are going fine. And even to think that maybe they're blessed by God. The final quote is from Bishop Athanasius Schneider. And this is in one of the responses that he gave to an interview in print by The Remnant. Some of you are familiar with the publication of The Remnant, published on December the 22nd, so just a couple of days ago. And in this particular part that I'm quoting from his answer, he's responding to the question, how do you believe diocesan bishops should respond to fiducia supplicants? Again, the document. So this is Bishop Schneider's response, quote, True Catholic bishops can only respond in one way, by determinedly rejecting the declaration, as it permits priests to perform an intrinsically immoral act by invoking God's holy name through a blessing upon an objectively sinful situation that is known to the public. The swift response of bishops who have prohibited their priests from blessing couples in irregular situations and same-sex couples has been a source of great consolation and encouragement to many priests and Catholic faithful. And then he lists some examples. So according to him, he's saying it's been a source of great consolation and encouragement to many priests and Catholic faithful. Again, those bishops that have, let's say, um, rejected this document and are prohibiting their priests from following it. I'll tell you that me personally, I'm not that consoled and encouraged because it's a very small number. I mean, you're, you're thinking, okay, so you, you've got a hand, I'll, I'll list you the examples that he's given, but we have a very small number of Episcopal conferences that let's say have basically rejected this and I'm asking, where's everyone else? I mean, it couldn't be more obvious that you have to reject this. Again, anyone who truly begins to reflect on, especially, you know, taking a little bit more time to reflect on, these great truths about Jesus Christ, that He's going to come to judge us, that He will judge me on the day of my death, that He comes to me today in Holy Communion, and that He came to save me, to offer all the grace is necessary so that I can overcome any sin. Any person that's truly reflecting on this will know I can't possibly be following what is being proposed here. And now you're telling me that the vast majority of Episcopal conferences in the world have remained pretty much silent? So the examples that Bishop Schneider mentions are, he names the example of the Archbishop of St. Mary in Astana, Kazakhstan. That's actually his bishop, because he's an auxiliary bishop. So actually, Bishop Schneider's Archbishop, both 
Bishop Schneider and his archbishop, they actually wrote a letter in this regard. Again, I encourage you to read it all. So that's one example. Also the head of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And then the bishops' conferences of Poland, Malawi, Zambia, Ghana, Cameroon, and Zimbabwe. So six episcopal conferences in the world, only one in Europe, Poland, the other five in Africa. So you say, where's Latin America? Where's North America? Where's Europe? Where's Asia? I ask you also to think about this. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think also God has His ways of waking us up. Today's Gospel was taken from Matthew chapter 1 because it's the Gospel for December the 24th. It's the Gospel for the Vigil of the Nativity. But the Gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent, so if today had been any other day, the Gospel, because it's also the fourth Sunday of Advent, it would have been Luke chapter 3. You can all look that Gospel passage up in your missiles if you just go fourth Sunday of Advent. That's the Gospel. What is today's Gospel? And by the way, for those of you that were at Mass here yesterday on Ember Saturday, it was also yesterday's Gospel. So yesterday's Gospel is the same as the Gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent. And what you have in the Gospel is Something completely different, and trust me, it's completely different from what you have in this document that just came out by the Vatican a week ago. Because what you have in Luke chapter 3 is St. John the Baptist preaching, quote, the baptism of penance for the remission of sins. And he says, make straight the paths of the Lord. This is what Advent is. The whole season of Advent. Holy Mother Church during the entire season of Advent is telling us, repent, turn away from sin. Not a single place in the document, repent and turn away from sin. Repent, turn away from sin, prepare for the Lord because the Lord is coming. That's why I tell you, how can you claim to believe in the coming of the Lord? If you're not even, be, if you're not even preparing for His coming. If you're not seeking His grace and His strength so that you can overcome whatever it is that you need to overcome in your life, and you can with His grace and with His help. And even more importantly, we might say, than St. John the Baptist's message in the Gospel for the fourth Sunday of Advent, we could say maybe even more important than the entire Catholic Church's preaching for the season of Advent, Consider our Savior Jesus Christ. In each of those four comings, again, those four great truths, it could not be clearer that Jesus Himself is calling souls to conversion. Yes, Christ does it with incredible love, mercy, Patience, we could even say sweetness, but he's calling souls to conversion. The fact that he will come and he will come in glory and majesty to judge the living and the dead, it's a call for you to convert. The fact that he's going to judge you on the day of your death, he's calling you to convert because he loves you. 
He's going to give you all the help that you need. He's already given you the example. Christmas. The fact that He comes to us today in Holy Communion. He's calling us to receive Him with a pure heart. To convert. The fact that He came on Christmas Day. How can anyone truly not meditate on the baby Jesus and want to love Him in return? And the first step to love Him in return is to leave behind sin, to follow Him, to trust in Him, to truly, in a sense, you know, consecrate one's life to Him. All of this is telling us, again, our Lord Himself, convert, convert, turn away from sin. And again, obviously with great mercy, with great love. It's not like that's absent. But again, this urgent Catholic call to conversion, completely missing in the document. I want to conclude by reading to you, it's a brief passage from the mystical city of God. And it has to do with the final days before Christmas, how God prepares the Blessed Virgin Mary for the nativity of our Lord. Listen carefully because hopefully during this Christmas season, you will make a special effort more than you have in the past to truly be grateful to the Blessed Virgin Mary, to give her thanks, because truly our Blessed Mother, she has given us our Savior Jesus Christ, and it is in a very mysterious but great way, it is her holiness and her ardent desire for the coming of the Messiah, her great love of God that sped up and that, in a sense, brought about the incarnation of the Son of God. So here's the passage from the mystical city of God. In order to put the last touch to this prodigious work of preparing the Most Holy Mary, the Lord extended His powerful arm and expressly renewed the spirit and faculties of the great lady, giving her new inclinations, habits, and qualities, the greatness of which are inexpressible in terrestrial terms. The whole temple of Most Holy Mary, more so than that of Solomon, was covered with the purest gold of the divinity, inside and out. Her entire being was made to shine forth the divinity, For since the divine word was to issue forth from the bosom of the eternal father to descend to that of Mary, he provided for the greatest possible similarity between the mother and the father. While the Most High continued the proximate preparation of our heavenly princess for the reception of the eternal word in her virginal womb, She, on her part, persevered without intermission in her fervent sighs and prayers to hasten His coming into the world. The heavenly princess, most holy Mary, had now attained such fullness of grace and beauty and the heart of God was so wounded by her tender affections and desires that He was, so to say, irresistibly drawn to begin his flight from the bosom of the Eternal Father to the bridal chamber of her virginal womb and end the long delay of more than 5,000 years. Close quote. 
in a profound and mysterious way, it was the Blessed Virgin Mary's love of God, her holiness, her prayers, and her ardent desire for the coming of the Savior, which contributed greatly to the incarnation and birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the true light of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.